Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Madden are recruiters for cybersecurity and corporate governance professionals. Leveraging our long-held relationships, industry knowledge, and data-driven approach, we help companies and candidates make better hiring decisions. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast, and your host is Carla Refold. Today we are joined by James Green. James is the Director for Risk Advisory Services at SAI Global. The former asset manager is passionate about life safety and helps the C-suite understand the importance of business continuity, not just during an emergency, but as an integral part of the day-to-day operations. He has worked on risk events that have occurred all over the globe, including civil unrest in Egypt during the Arab Spring, executive travel and protection in the Pacific Rim, cybersecurity, and the effects of destructive tornadoes in Oklahoma. Hope you enjoy well, James, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Carla. So I'd really love to learn a little bit more about you. So tell us, you know, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Sure thing. I was born in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. Uh, spent most of my youth there. I got tired of the gray and the snow Um, So in the mid-90s, I moved to Florida. I've moved around several times, but for the most part, I've been in the Tampa area ever since. I'm sure there's quite a few people that will be uh, very jealous of that and and your weather there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I get uh, friends and family all throughout the world make a lot of fun of me living in Florida during hurricane season. But then from October through April or May, when it's beautiful here and they're stuck in the gray and the snow, then they say, oh, I wish I lived in Florida. So you take the good with the bad. Yeah. <laughs> and what about education? What did you do for education? <clears throat> uh, yeah. So I initially went to school for uh, astrophysics and then political science um, and ended up using none of that in my career. Uh, I think that's how that happens for a lot of people. So I spent 10 years in the financial services industry before moving to business continuity and risk where I've been for the last 10 years or so. I think you're right. And I think it's one of the things I love about the industry that actually your your degree and your education topic doesn't always matter uh, You know, if you've got the, the right skills for the, the job. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. You don't, now you're starting to see undergraduate and graduate degree programs on resilience and business continuity, but certainly that is something that's only happened uh, in the last few years. So to your point, most of the people I work with or interact with had no experience in business continuity or resilience. They kind of got voluntold uh, to do this as part of their job or fell into it um, like I did. Well, I was just about to ask you, do you remember the first time you heard about business continuity? Absolutely. So um, as I mentioned, I worked in financial services. I was um, part of a company in 2008 during the Great Recession that the company was acquired. All the employees were laid off. So as everyone knows, the economy was in a free fall then. 
um, I'd worked for four financial services firms up to that point in my career, and two of them had gone out of business and laid everyone off. So very, and I was looking to make um, a change, and I got a call from a friend of mine who said, "Hey, uh, I know a company that's looking for." a head of business continuity management. They've gone through four people in less than four years. They really want to go outside of the box with candidates. And I said, I'm your out of the box guy because I don't even know what business continuity is. So that was uh, the first time that I heard about business continuity. I um, somehow convinced this company that they should hire me. Um, And honestly, I had to relocate for that job within the same state, but, you know, four or five hour. Um, and I had so little faith in myself, Carla, that I initially rented an uh, an apartment on a short term lease because I assumed that within a month they would clearly know that just like I said, I didn't know anything about business continuity and, uh, that would be that. Well, given that you felt that way, what made you want to take the job? Uh, I really thought it was interesting of the field of business continuity and what people are trying to do. And it lined up with a lot of things that had impacted me um, as I was growing up. So like I said, I, I, uh, I've i lived in Florida, so I've experienced firsthand the effects of hurricanes and been a part of community response and community resilience. But it was really for me, it was Hurricane Katrina that um, I really struggled with, like a lot of people did, with what happened there, with the decisions that were made and not made, and the policies that were followed and not followed. And I remember at the time just wanting to be on the ground and volunteer in some capacity. And every organization I spoke to, they said, well, you have no experience in emergency management, you have no experience in disaster recovery, you have no experience in business continuity, resilience, so we don't need you. And that kind of always followed me around was there was this moment in time, there was this event that I wanted to participate in and give back in and I was not qualified. So then several years later when a company said, oh, we want to take business continuity in a different direction, uh, I was very excited to jump at that opportunity. Wow, I think that's a a great reason to get into the industry. Um, So a lot has happened for business continuity as an industry over the past sort of 10 years or so. Yes. So when when you started, I mean, I imagine things, policies were largely based on events like Katrina, you know, localized events that took one office out. Is is that right? Is that your experience? Yeah, absolutely. So we in risk management are best at mitigating the risk that just happened. Right. <laughs> right. So right now, every company is ready for the next pandemic. We always focus on on what just happened. So very early in my career, my methodology was very scenario based, structured. I, I like to think I created beautiful risk assessments and BIAs and plans. I was more um, on the project management side of business continuity, right? Because that's what I had learned. I went to conferences, that's what I was taught. Everything was very structured and methodical and non-chaotic. 
And then what happened, um, I was working for a global company and we had a significant presence in Cairo, right? And the Egyptian government fell. Right, I remember that. We didn't have a playbook. There was no playbook. I didn't have a binder on civil unrest to the point that the government collapses. So all of a sudden we were dealing with how do we protect our people during riots? How do we protect our facility, our proprietary information? We had high profile visitors. What do we do for them? Um, And that event, and then later on Fukushima really upended everything I thought I knew about business continuity because I realized there was a giant disconnect between what we plan for and then what we actually do. And um, since that time, I think I've moved very aggressively into the camp of how do we, it's very important to mitigate risk ahead of time, but how do we prepare for that unknown? Because there's always an unknown. Just look at what's happened in the last five months, right? Uh, All of Australia was on fire during, uh, due to wildfires. We had and are still having COVID-19, at one point, four billion people on the planet were under some type of shelter in place order. There's no run book for that. Just recently, you had a cyclone in you know, Bangladesh, India, two million people had to be evacuated during that and also during a pandemic. So there's always, for me, there's always that next unknown. And so I really try to uh, focus our clients and our practice in a kind of look forward model of risk management. So how does that impact the plans you make? <clears throat> so uh, you and your audience would probably not like a lot of the plans that I write. Um, honestly, they are not 40, 50 page, 100 page um, binders. Um, I try to keep them light. And I try to, I always look at, is this actionable, right? Right. If Mm -hmm. I gave this to you, if I gave this to the crisis management team during an incident, could you actually do something with it? So um, the plans that I typically write are, are high level and they're very, I try to very stress test them through exercises and tests. So I want them to be actionable, I want them to be relevant, and I want them to be brief because, um, like I said, based on Cairo and based on Fukushima, if your building is on fire or something happens, you're not going to say, oh, let me go grab the fifth binder and in chapter five, page 397 is where I need to look for this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just about to ask you on that. You know, you can... um... You can train your board if, if you're lucky and you've got the, their buy-in and they will give you that time. Um, but actually, you can't train them on every scenario um, and keep that up to date. They're not going to be able to give you that time. They will have other priorities. So how do you plan for that? Yeah, so prior to COVID-19, if you were lucky, right, you saw your um, your sea level or you saw your board once a year, maybe, if you were lucky, if there weren't incidents. So when I do um, 
exercises for groups like that that I know I'm only going to see once a year. The scenario itself is, um, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud, but the scenario itself is almost less important than getting that group to work together as a team. So I want that team to be able to quickly make decisions no matter what is thrown at them so that when something does happen, they're not classically trained just around a specific scenario. I need people to work together when it's three in the morning and we've been awake for 24 hours, right? They're under duress. Um, we're all stressed out for personal and professional reasons during that incident. So my exercises are really focused around, can you come to consensus? Can you make decisions? And early when I'm working with a team, I'd rather even have them make bad decisions during an exercise or something that doesn't matter than not being able to make a decision at all. I think that's that's really powerful, like that imperfect action. Yes. Do you think that's changed over the past 10 years? Do you think, you know, business continuity teams got more time with their C-level, um, you know, 10 years ago than they have done recently? Yeah, I think over time um, where we have misstepped <clears throat> as a profession is not showing value to management. And when we get very focused on check the box type activities, that could be impactful and meaningful if done right. But if all you're reporting to the board is we updated our risk assessments. If you're an enterprise risk management, we updated our risk registry. 98% of our departments completed their BIAs and plans. How are you showing management that you're really mitigating risk? So a lot of organizations that I see that focus solely on those metrics, and I'm not saying not to have metrics or not report on them, but if that's all that you're providing to the board or to management, then that value diminishes over time. And certainly what we expect to see coming out of COVID-19, uh, we as a profession have management's attention and have the spotlight in a way we have never had before, right? Because I don't know an organization out there that hasn't been impacted in some way by COVID-19. And we are seeing a lot of boards and management teams saying, what do we really need to do? So we're in this um, unique moment in, in the history of our profession where you have that spotlight right now. You have more management attention than you've ever had and maybe more management attention than you want, honestly. <laughs> and what are you going to do with it? Because you won't have that attention six months from now if you just go back to doing what you were doing. Now, you know, 10 years ago, we had swine flu, we've had SARS, we've had terrorist attacks where, you know, business continuity teams got a little bit of a boost. Um, and I remember sort of 10 years ago, companies planning for a pandemic of this scale. But I guess much like you're saying, you know, you can only teleboard those risks so many times. Um, and then if they don't happen, they probably get a little bit bored of hearing the same level of reporting. Um so do you think that companies will now say, okay, we were right, we need to invest? Or do you think there's a risk that they go, well, it's happened now. So actually, what's the chance of this actually happening again in the next 10 years? Yeah, certainly to your point. So when we had H1N1 and SARS, uh, you really saw companies that were affected 
um, in certain parts of the world take action. And then you saw companies in, in Europe and North America pay attention and prepare. But over time, um, like you said, that interest waned and they said, okay, nothing really happened here. Um, look at how much attention was paid to Ebola versus how many people in the U.S. actually had it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you have that risk of right now the board and management is excited and interested and wants to invest in COVID-19. You need to shift their mentality of let's get excited and invest in risk mitigation and resilience so that we're prepared for whatever that next thing is. And as their interest wanes in pandemic, their interest hasn't waned um, overall. And a good way to drive that, that we're seeing a lot of companies is look at the impact that this pandemic has had to companies' top line revenue and net income. That is always a great way to get companies' attention, right? Hey, mitigating these risks, doing these things preserves <clears throat> our revenue, protects our income, and protects our our brand and reputation. And I think that's a big aspect of business continuity that a lot of companies miss right now. If you have a major business continuity event, you look bad to the public, your customers will replace you over time. And we found really where you create stickiness and traction with business continuity is when companies understand how it affects um, their brand and long-term, you know, profitability. Have you seen any companies that throughout COVID-19 have <clears throat> done well, any companies that were prepared? Yeah, so certainly um, there were a lot of companies that were heavily invested in the Wuhan region of China, right, that um, I work with one company I can't name but they started looking at the risk of pandemic and supply chain disruption because of where they were in China three years ago. So when this came along, they were able to respond um, very quickly. And you've also seen a lot of companies pivot what they're doing, right, to stay in, in business. So uh, right now, for example, in the United States, every commercial you see around a restaurant or food delivery or anything like that uses the term contactless, contactless preparation, contactless delivery. That term didn't even really exist 60 days ago. And now it's everywhere. So you're seeing companies realize <clears throat> first the companies who were successful in, in planning and mitigating risk ahead of time. But then the other really key is how are you pivoting your business um, during this time. And that's another great opportunity that I think we as risk professionals have. Our classical model of there's a disaster or an incident, we recover, we get the business back to business as normal, business as usual, isn't going to work right now, right? If the business has changed, if the direction of the business has changed, we need to help guide the business to that new location. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I've wondered a lot over the last couple of months, you know, we didn't have the technology that we have 10 years ago that would have enabled to work, everyone to work from home. 
but we did have a lot of planning in place. I know lots of companies stockpiled masks and things like that. Do you think we would have been more prepared 10 years ago or are we better positioned now? I certainly think 10 years ago, we would have been more prepared for the PPE aspect, right? A lot of business continuity at the time was focused around emergency management, which is around, like you said, the mask, the gloves, um, the, the, you know, antibacterial. Um, so stockpiling things, certainly companies had more robust reserves, but to your point exactly, companies would be in significant trouble 10 years ago. You didn't have the technology, like you said, to work from home. Your average consumer was not buying as much off the internet as they were now. Um, people who are ordering to go and take away and take out from restaurants are using apps or using their phones. So I would expect that if this type of thing happened 10 years ago, a lot more businesses would have um, gone away. Yeah. It'll be interesting if we have another one in another 10 years, you know, will we, how will we respond and be affected then? Exactly. Look at how much shopping is done online prior to this event. So yeah, there's consumers and people are already, we're already buying the majority, you know, people like myself, I buy almost everything online that I can, except for uh, groceries. So that kind of transition, it wasn't even a transition and you'll, you'll continue to see that grow, but certainly 10 years from now, it'll be very interesting of, of what we thought of this time. If there's another event like this. I'm really excited for what this could mean for retail. You know, like you, I buy everything online because I want to avoid going to a crowded shopping mall. Um, but if malls become less crowded, if you have to book a time to go, if going becomes a real experience, then actually I might be encouraged to go back. You know, we, we could maybe have a different effect to what we're predicting. Yeah, I think you're certainly going to see certain high-end companies really capitalize on that high-touch unique experience, right? If it becomes an experience or an event, they really have an opportunity to um, take their business in different directions. Now, your role is, you know, one which I, th I think is positioned really well. You don't just look at business continuity. You look at cybersecurity, physical security, a whole range of different things. How do you, how do you see that being a benefit? Yeah, so... I started talking about this crazy concept two years ago about connecting the dots. So why do we look at risk in silos? So your organ a large organization has a business continuity steering committee. They have an enterprise risk committee. They may have a vendor risk committee. On the cyber side, you may have a cybersecurity incident response team. You have all these different mechanisms, but it doesn't work right, for a lot of large organizations. If you and I are at the C-level of a company, I don't have time, you don't have time to meet with six or seven different risk committees. It just doesn't happen. We need to know what the threats are to the entire organization and during an event, how do we mitigate them? You don't want to meet with five or six different teams. You just want to know where are our risks. So certainly, um, like you said, in the space that I play in, we help companies kind of bring all those things together and remove those silos. 
And do you think there are companies that are doing that well, or do you still see that the majority of companies are siloed in that way? Uh, if you would have asked me this question four months ago, I would say there's not a lot of companies doing this well. But what we've seen during COVID-19 has been unprecedented by pushing everyone, you know, to work from home that can. Is that a cyber security? Is that business continuity? Right. The lines are are bleeding right now. So um, a few examples. We've all seen the interactive map from John Hopkins University, right, with the daily COVID-19 um, stats. There's a lot of versions of malware of that out there. You can buy them very easily, very cheaply. So if your employees are using something and it becomes a malware situation, right, and I know of several companies who are right now dealing with malware or ransomware during work from home for COVID-19, if, if half of our employees lose their ability to access their computers and they can no longer work from home, is that a cyber event? Is it a business continuity event? Is it both? So a lot of companies right now are recognizing, hey, it can't be either or, right? And especially now, so many employees are using their personal devices, right? Or have mobility for the first time. If I lose my company issued laptop and I can't work from home right now, is that a, is that a cyber event because maybe it's not un, you know it's not encrypted? Is it a business continuity event because an employee now can't work? Is it both? So lots of companies, like I said, over the last sixty days are really understanding that you can't be either or, right? How do you still adhere to your data privacy rules? and regulations and policies, those haven't been suspended. So if an employee needs access to PII to do their work and they can't now remotely, again, is that a cyber event? Is that a business continuity event where your plan's not strong enough? So you're, you're seeing um, the two areas really bleed over in a way that we haven't seen before, um, which is really bad for organizations, but I think is really exciting in the risk profession going forward, if we're really trying to mitigate risk and in, and increase resilience in an organization, you know, how do all those things tie together? How do we mitigate those risks regardless of the point of origin? I mean, cybersecurity has had an explosion of investment <clears throat> and interest, obviously, in the last few years. Do you think that's been at the expense of business continuity teams? Yeah, I think so, um, because you know, we act on what we understand, right? And so, as you know, the risk of a breach or an event has been large and has been frequent for a very long time. But what we saw, especially in the United States, it was the target breach, right, that got that into the consciousness of your typical consumer. And it was that same target breach that got management and boards to understand, oh, this is why this is important, right? This yeah. is why it's not an if, but it's a, a when. And if you look at, you know, we talked earlier about brand and reputation. Uh, for me, it was the Equifax incident that really made that clear to a lot of companies that yes, they technically recovered, but when you think of that 
term or that brand, they had permanent brand erosion, right? That's a that's a business continuity event. So certainly we've seen a huge investment in cybersecurity as we should. Um, but yeah, I think in the short run, that was at the expense of other um, areas of risk. And if you think about the people in the in the job market in cybersecurity and in business continuity or crisis management, do you think there's an understanding generally in the industry as a whole that we need to work together? Uh, typically, no. So a lot of times um, I'm asked to run a tabletop exercise that's a joint business continuity and cybersecurity event, right? So a common thread that pulls them together. And quite often in large organizations, I have those two groups in a room and they tell me it's the first time they've ever sat down with each other. Wow. So hopefully something like, you know, COVID-19 and this work from home continues to push those organizations together. But a lot of times there's still cybersecurity, you'll roll up to maybe the CIO, right? And Mm -hmm. business continuity, if they don't have a chief risk officer, may roll up, up to facilities or HR or the general counsel. So a lot of organizations, the, the reporting lines don't intersect until the, the CEO, which is, is way too high up the chain. Absolutely. And when you're doing exercises like that, how many of them involve their, um, their media team or their PR team? Uh, if it's up to me, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. There is, uh, in the, in, um, especially in the age of social media, Mm-hmm. Right. Like a lot of companies have this policy of, well, our employees don't talk to reporters. Our employees don't talk to traditional media. So we're good. But as you know, I guarantee whatever happens is going to end up on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok. You name it. It's going to end up out there. So um when I get to choose, media is always, and PR and marketing is always in the room. Because it's, again, just like a cyber breach, it's not a matter of if, but when it will get out there. And as soon as you appear as an organization to be responding to something, you're always behind the curve. So you need to be proactive with your communications. You need to be monitoring. I ask companies this all the time. Are you monitoring social media to see if your organization is trending and if it is why because that's usually for a lot of companies that's usually not a good thing so and i i think i've been predicting for the last couple of months that we're going to see a real um a real backlash against companies that responded to this pandemic badly you know the companies that chose to not pay their staff uh, versus the companies that did um or the companies that communicated their processes early to their staff rather than the ones that reacted really late. Do you, do you think we'll see something similar? Yeah, certainly. So if you look at the Hertz bankruptcy that was filed um, last week, at first everyone was understanding, oh, obviously no one's renting cars at airports right now because people aren't traveling for business. People aren't going on vacation. There was initially this wave of I wouldn't say sympathy, but understanding. And then the information that came out this week that 
the top level of executives got paid a $16 million bonus the week before that filing. That changes that whole perception to you of, okay, so are people taking care of their employees? Um, you've seen organizations who have raised the pay of their frontline essential workers. They've created a lot of goodwill by, by doing that. Yeah, versus retail companies that are then docking the pay of their workers to take out the cost of the PPE that they're providing them. Exactly, and that that affects your that organization's brand. That is a long-term um, business continuity issue, right? You're going to see people not shop or not use their dollars at those companies because they're going to remember, hey, you took care of not only your employees, but the community during a hard time, or you did not. So yeah, we expect to see people's buying habits change. Um, and they always do based on how, how companies perform in the community and how companies treat their employees. Those kind of things are just really heightened during any type of disaster. Now, we're hearing a lot about how, um, you know, cybersecurity issues have really increased over the last couple of months. You know, the, um, you know, people taking advantage of the fact that maybe security defenses have been lowered or people are working at home. Um, are you seeing something similar? Yeah, so we're seeing two things. One, threat actors are smart, right? Uh, you know, a hacker is not a person in a hoodie in their parents' basement. They are very smart and sophisticated people. Oftentimes they are nation state sponsored and they follow um, and look to grab onto whatever's trending. So that's why you're seeing all this COVID-19 type malware. So we're certainly seeing an increase of that. And then the other thing, like I said, we're seeing an increase of um, as a lot of organizations are working from home, they're not fully sophisticated about, you know, maybe they have a container around the employee's cell phone and let's say they even have an encrypted laptop. Um, do they have a VPN that's robust enough? One thing we're seeing quite often right now is a lot of people borrow or surf off of their neighbor's Wi-Fi. Right. Okay. So, so now your employees working from home, but they're using the neighbor's Wi-Fi. They don't have their own dedicated Internet. How are you even controlling? What are you doing about the neighbor's router? So there's a lot of opportunities now for data to be intercepted that companies aren't um, fully, fully thinking about. So we're seeing an increase of that. Um, Companies are trying to wrestle with, uh, you know, what are employees doing with the devices after hours? Are there kids on those devices? Um, are the devices they're using fully patched, right? Look at the Internet of Things and do you have, you know, we're seeing organizations say, hey, use your personal laptop for work right now because you had a desktop and we can't afford to issue a, a laptop. So now is my is my laptop patched? Is it up to date? Do I have antivirus on it so uh, we're certainly seeing an increase of um, like I said ransomware and malware on the on the one side and then a lot of loss of data integrity 
And what are companies telling you that they're thinking about for the future? Are they saying that they're, you know, working from home is the future model for them or are they undecided? Yeah, so you're seeing a lot of companies move to the work from home model uh, permanently, which is very surprising in some arenas. So nationwide insurance, which is, you know, a U.S.-based insurance organization, insurance in general, Carla, right, is kind of a very conservative uh, industry. And they said that they are selling five of their buildings in U.S. in four U.S. states and permanently moving to work from home. So what some companies are seeing is the productivity drop-off has not been what they thought, right? By Mm -hmm. dispersing your workforce, you mitigate risk because what's one of the classic uh, concerns of business continuity? We're all in a 20-story building. That building goes away for whatever reason. Now what do we do? But if we're dispersed all over, the, the building becomes irrelevant. And then what we're seeing with a lot of organizations is the cost issue. Uh, you and I have a building in Manhattan. What's the cost per square foot of that? If we get rid of that building, a huge expense goes down. And we also have a much wider candidate pool. Again, if we're trying to recruit people to work in our office in New York City, people either have to live there or have to relocate there. If we just ask people to work uh, United States Eastern time zone hours, you now can recruit from the whole country. So you get a much wider uh, applicant pool. And we're going to see a lot of companies reduce their expenses. And you've even seen it in, in Silicon Valley, where all the companies are built right around that campus model. Twitter said, come back when you want to. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook said he was surprised that his productivity of his coders didn't drop as much as he thought it would. Think about how much that campus in Menlo Park cost to maintain. So we certainly, um, we expect to see a lot of companies move to either you know work from home permanent or more hybrid models and be more willing for um, telecommute than they have in the past. I think this is the first time I've heard you know a wide conversation about home working is really a cost issue. Um, you know the first time people started working from home was companies had reduced their <clears throat> office footprint after the 2008 crash then they needed to upscale their people, but they didn't necessarily have the seats for them anymore. So by putting your office at 125% capacity, all of a sudden it made sense for people to work from home. But I don't think that's been widely considered until now. Yeah, because like you said, I don't think companies have been forced to, right? right? And so there's a lot of mentality at the management level of, oh, if I can't see you, you're not productive. And then what happens now is if the government closes your jurisdiction and you're forced to work from home, then you can say, oh, this is actually productive. And then people start thinking about, like you said, the cost savings. What do I have to pay per square foot per employee to support expensive real estate? And is it is it required? Were those employees interacting on a personal level or with customers in person in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So 
what other trends do you think we're going to see come out over the next couple of years, either within security or business continuity or both? So, you know, one thing when we uh, we first started sharing with our clients and talking to our clients about COVID-19 in January, which feels like a lifetime ago, it was a supply chain issue, right? We completely missed the whole world really missed how big of a pandemic this would become. But initially it was a supply chain issue. Um, and so what what I expect to probably change and mature going forward, a lot of organizations run on a just-in-time philosophy, right? It's the leanest way to run. It's the most profitable, most efficient way to run. But when you have a very lean supply chain and when you're integrated with suppliers and vendors all throughout the world, what happens when there's a bump in the night? So if you had manufacturing areas, you look at, you know, the Wuhan region was closed for weeks and weeks. There were parts of Italy that were closed for weeks and weeks. What are you doing if you rely on vendors or suppliers to provide goods and services to your customers? Because what's going to happen is for those companies, let's say you and I, we experience a disruption because of what our vendors couldn't provide our customers aren't going to care, right? They're just going to know you fell down and I'm going to look to replace you. So I certainly expect to see companies take a long, hard look at diversification of their supply chain. Like, should we be using one company for 90% of this one widget or process or even a call center, or should we split that over multiple organizations? How do we diversify that? We expect to see companies continue to make their vendor risk management programs more sophisticated. So a lot of companies, what they call vendor risk is just contract management. Did James have the authority to sign this contract? Does it have SLAs? What's the notification period? But certainly we expect companies to get more robust about that and then tie vendor risk back into business continuity. So as the business continuity professional for your company, those critical vendors, do you know how robust their business continuity programs are, right? You can outsource function, you can outsource process, but you can't um, outsource liability. So we certainly expect uh, in the future for vendor risk management, supply chain, and again, how vendor risk ties to business continuity to really mature for organizations that were impacted um, by COVID-19. Do you think we'll see companies sort of renationalize some of their supply chain? Yeah, certainly. I think companies that have experienced massive disruptions, right? Uh, if you and I offshore something to save 10% of cost, which is significant, but we lost 70% of our revenue the last two months. Was that a good trade? So yeah, we certainly expect to see companies take a long look at how much is the savings versus what is the, the risk of disruption. 
Now, given that you had a, you know, an unusual entry into this sector, if anyone's listening and they think that was really fascinating and I want to go take a career path down business continuity, resilience, cybersecurity, what advice would you give to those people? Um, have, have a diverse background, have an understanding of the business, any business, a lot of groups that are, I hate to use this word, right? But service organizations, if you're in risk or you're in, uh, human resources or finance, a lot of people in those types of verticals don't understand how their business actually operates, what the business needs are, where their pain points are, where we make money, where we lose money. And I think by being embedded and tied to the business, you're going to have a successful career because you're going to be able to show value for risk as a whole. Um, And then the other thing I would encourage people to do is if they want to get into business continuity or stay in business continuity, work at very different organizations. So if you only know business continuity or risk for a financial services firm, you should know manufacturing. You should know retail. Um, Those are all very different ways to respond. So as you and I were talking earlier, a lot of back office functions, uh, a lot of white collar jobs, the, the business continuity plan for the pandemic was just work from home. But if you and I had business continuity for a retailer, that can't be the response, right? I can't can't tell my staff to work from home. People aren't going to come to their house to shop. I know that sounds ludicrous, right? But you have to understand, um, I think, to really grow and and move up through the profession, different, completely different types of, of industries because business continuity for a manufacturer is completely different than one for a retailer is completely different than one for a bank even though the underlying foundation may be similar the rest um, is not really comparable no i think that's really good advice now we end each podcast with 10 quick questions so i need the first oh my goodness okay (laughs) oh dear this is why every time i do these i get in trouble so i want to apologize (laughs) in advance to Uh, my employer and all your listeners for whatever might come out of my mouth right now. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, let's go. So uh, what turns you on professionally? (sighs) (laughs) Um, Really making a a difference for the business. What turns you off professionally? Check the box type mentality for risk. How do you unwind? Uh, So as I mentioned before, I'm fortunate enough to live in Florida. We have a very beautiful uh, backyard um, and I am out there uh, every night. Nice. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Uh, I was just talking to my wife about this the other night. I feel like I was born to be um, a lawyer. I'm actually going back to school right now for cybersecurity. And the class I'm currently taking is around cybersecurity and the law. And it's the most fired up I've been about an academic class in a very long time. Nice. Um, 
what activity gives you the most energy? Uh, exercise. It's counterintuitive, but when I work out in the mornings, I have more energy all day than uh, days like today where I slept in and did not. <laughs> Who is your biggest inspiration? Uh, that would be uh, my wife. She is uh, the lighthouse for my whole life and um, continually instills in me a spirit to to always do better than what I did yesterday. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? <laughs> well, if we were just looking for uh, clicks and views, the one word would be COVID-19. But honestly... Uh, the one word would be resilience. You are at your best when you're doing what? Uh, helping people see their potential. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Uh, it would be the lessons of the lesson of patience. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? You know, I would be thankful for any reason. I think um, the one thing I would be most excited about, uh, I would love to see uh, my, my grandmother who passed away when I was a teenager. I think of her all the time and I think I would be most excited to see her first. I think that's, um, you're the first person that said to me, I'd be grateful for any reason. I think that's a really good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't, um, wherever the bar is, as long as I'm a millimeter over the bar and get in, I think um, there wouldn't be a lot to complain about. Yeah, so. <laughs> I think that's a great point. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.